When I am in emotional pain, I seek the outdoors. I grew up here in Frederick, which means that throughout the region I have special places I go to find solace. Certain boulders at Cunningham Falls, the far edge of Wolf Rock, one of the sycamore trees in Baker Park. Quiet places where I can cry or think. I always feel better after sitting in those spaces for a while. This practice or habit of sitting with a non-human began when I was a child. We had an ornamental cherry tree in our front yard, and it was just large enough that I could climb it. There was a perfect branch for sitting about halfway up the tree where I could lean my head on another large branch. And when the human world got to be too much, and it did so pretty frequently, I would climb my tree and pour my heart out to it. And I would feel better. In those moments, I'm not sure if what I experience is anthropomorphizing or an externalization of a part of the self or a chemical reaction due to the smell of growing things or the very real presence of beings that are not human but are quite sentient in their own way. I'm a mystic, which means I seek out transcendental experiences and interactions that fall outside the world of petri dishes and double-blind studies. My own truth is that there's so much more to this world than what we can see with a microscope. When you experience the world as sentient, as a collection of beings who have thoughts and needs and opinions of their own, it changes how you behave. As a gardener, I lean toward permaculture because that approach to growing food and flowers and herbs seeks to heal and improve the entire ecosystem. Just as my body is an outward expression of the spirit inside it, the trees and stones and flowing hills and streams of this region are the outward expression of the spirits inside them. We try to be kind to the bodies of our friends. We remember their food allergies and sensitivities. We know which friends we can invite to go on a long hike and which friends would be better suited to a game night invitation. When we gift items, we choose things our loved ones would enjoy, even if it's something we're not really into. My stepdaughter loves the color yellow. I have different feelings about that color. <laughs> but because she adores it, I make and buy things in the color yellow for her. The land around us is no different than our human companions when it comes to preferences and needs. This is why when you plant a flower that really ought to grow beautifully in your yard, sometimes it just doesn't. Those needs don't get expressed using human language, but preferences are communicated. It's the wrong gift for that spot. Maybe the land doesn't like the color yellow. Or... Maybe there's a need in the soil that hasn't been addressed yet, a little bit like a vitamin de deficiency in one of our bodies. It is so easy to mentally and emotionally separate ourselves from the earth, as though it's some sort of movie we're watching that doesn't include us at all. But we are a part of this tapestry, just one of many, many beings who live together and try to build their futures here. When you look at a tree, 
you're looking at the body of a being that's not so different from you. A being that talks to its neighbors, prefers some beings over others, tries to meet its needs and the needs of its children and its family, and is trying just as we are to make a life here on earth. The word animism means a perspective that spirit is in everything. My own experience of this concept is quite real. It's why I can sit at the base of a tree and relax my thoughts and find that I have a wonderful companion with me whose own perspectives help me untangle my feelings. It's why I can cry my heart out while sitting on a boulder in the forest and find myself held by more than just stone. There is a world of profound connection happening all around us. As we celebrate Earth Day, I invite you to remember the beingness of the life you see around you. I invite you to remember that you're looking at the body of a spirit, a body that is shaped differently than yours, but contains no less of a mystery of sentience and will than your own. We are spirits here together. We are bodies here together. And it is together as one co-creative, interdependent web of life that we must build the world to come. Yesterday was Earth Day, an annual invitation to celebrate this beautiful planet as well as to recommit ourselves to the work of environmental justice. Looking back, it's not a coincidence that the first Earth Day was held in 1970, about 15 months after an astronaut became the first human to take a color photo of our planet. From our ordinary terrestrial perspective, we're accustomed to seeing the sunrise. But this photo was taken from a lunar orbit, and above the horizon of the Earth's surface, we humans got to see our first Earthrise. This photo has been described as the most influential environmental photo ever taken. So why was it so paradigm shifting? What is it about this image? One of the most interesting reasons I've heard is, is drawn from the work of Robert Keegan. He's a developmental psychologist who was a professor for 40 years um, in Harvard University's Graduate School of Education prior to his retirement in 2016. This theory is a little tricky, but just, just stick with me for a second. Keegan posits that it's a major catalyst for psychological growth when the subject of one stage becomes the object of another. When the subject of one stage becomes the object of another. So what does that mean? Who's already with me? Who has no idea what I'm talking about? That's okay. <laughs> Let me unpack it a little. I think it'll be clearer if we use the specific example of this famous photograph. Prior to seeing an image of Earthrise, most of us human beings primarily experienced ourselves as subjects. We spent a lot of time caught up in our own drama and the drama of those around us. But this image of Earthrise reversed our perspective. Instead of being on Earth, seeing out, all of a sudden we were seeing back down at ourselves. And from a more objective perspective, we began to see that all of us, humans, animals, plants, all that Melissa was describing in her story and so much more, we're actually all in it together on this one planet, this blue marble in the inky blackness of space, so much bigger than the concerns of any one individual or group. 
So maybe Keegan's maxim might be beginning to make a little more sense that it can be a major catalyst for psychological growth when the subject of one stage becomes the object of another. It's really what mindfulness is all about, you know, beginning instead of, many of you have heard me say, there's all the difference in the world between I am anxious and being so caught up in that subjectivity and shifting it to there is anxiety. And there's also heat, and there's also coolness, and there's also seeing, and there's also... So do you see that, that shift from subjectivity to objectivity? And we won't get into this next week when we focus on meditation, but uh, so developing that witness stance is a really powerful move. The even more powerful move is when then you again make the witness itself an object. There's a famous saying in Zen that the witness is actually the last stand of the ego. So there's more to say about that, but that's another sermon for another time. Let me connect this briefly to, for those of you who are here on Easter Sunday. We spent some time unpacking this slide. This shift from egocentrism, from the perspective that the most important thing is my individual needs, uh, the shift from there to ecocentrism, what our UU Seventh Principle calls the interdependent web of all existence, of which we're all a part. This shift is vital if we're ever going to have any hope of building the world we dream about, of finding a way to be together that's actually sustainable long-term for people and planet. It's important to underscore that this shift is vital to graphs not only cognitively, but literally existentially. It's part of what Irene was talking about in uh, the spoken meditation, like really experiencing the, the love for this planet and really just feeling caught up in this interdependent web. And that's precisely what a view of our planet from space unlocked for many people. It, it woke a lot of people up, from, not enough people, but it woke a, a lot of people up from egocentrism from, or, or even ethnocentrism, right? Only caring about people and perspectives that, that are like you and whatever you want to think about it, into this ecocentrism, caring about this larger environment that all of us are a part of. In retrospect, it's significant to note that there was no widespread awareness in advance of how powerful this photo might be. If you look back at NASA's original plans for the Apollo 8 mission, they were hyper-focused on the moon. Taking photos of Earth was rated the lowest priority of the mission. But when the astronauts got, got to space, they were immediately almost overcome with the realization that we'd come all this way to the moon, and the most significant thing we're seeing is the Earth. There's another important shift that happens if we actually move from an ecological consciousness to a cosmological consciousness, a realization that we are just one very small part of a 13.7 billion-year-old universe story. We are merely the third rock from the sun. You know, like we're, our solar system is just on the edge of this spiral Milky Way galaxy, which itself is one of more, you know, Carl Sagan used to always say billions, right? Now we know it's bigger than that. It's actually two trillion galaxies, not just solar systems, two trillion galaxies, and probably a multiverse, but again, that's another sermon. <laughs> we're... Um, so, the, so here's one more piece from Carl Sagan, the cosmologist. He wrote it this way in his book titled Pale Blue Dot, a vision of human future from space, when we begin to take this, this shift seriously. Do you see that arrow in kind of the bottom right-hand corner that's pointing up? So if you're, if you're you know, the, the Cassini spacecraft in 2013 passing Saturn, looking back from Saturn, that's Earth, right? That little pale blue dot. 
Sagan wrote this, our posturing, our imagined self-importance, the delusions that we have some privileged position in the grand scheme of things, they are challenged by this pale point of light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. There is no hint that help will come from somewhere else to save us. As we talked about a few weeks ago, right? We are the ones we've been waiting for. This distant image of our tiny world underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another, to preserve and cherish this pale blue dot. It's the only home we've got. We're already on our paradise planet, and we're squandering it. So on this Earth Day weekend, I want to invite us to just spend some time reflecting on how is it that we Earthlings, not we United States citizens or whatever, like we Earthlings, right? We're all in this together. How we might equip ourselves better for the long haul. How might we work together in coalition across our differences to act for climate justice for ourselves and for future generations? Now, here's the hard part. Many of you have been on board with this ecological worldview, this cosmological worldview for decades, right? This is not, it's not really news to you. You know as well as I do that when was the best time to act for environmental justice? It was in the 70s, right? It was, it was after the first Earth Day. Or we can look even earlier. I know that for many of you, there was sufficient evidence in 1962 when Rachel Carson published Silent Spring. So much time has been lost. You know, well over a half century due to climate change denial, much of which has been funded cynically by greedy corporations. So where are we now on this 53rd anniversary of Earth Day? Well, in 2015, there were the, climate, uh, the Paris Climate Accords affirmed that the best climate science requires us to keep the rise in mean global temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is about 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, relative to pre-industrial revolutions, right? All this started to be a problem with the Industrial Revolution, right? This limit would substantially reduce the effects of climate change. But to date, we know that temperatures have already risen to 1.1, 1.2 degrees Fahrenheit, or I mean Celsius, about 2 degrees Fahrenheit. As a result, we're seeing this increasingly weird and scary weather. I'll limit myself just to two prominent examples. Many of you remember on the extreme cold end of the spectrum in winter of 2021, Texas, Texas experienced these major power outages from this severe winter weather that's not normal for Texas. On the extreme hot end of the spectrum in 2022, Argentina experienced this, you know, weeks of extraordinarily high temperatures soaring up to about 113 degrees Fahrenheit. These formerly once-in-a-century events are becoming increasingly, increasingly common. Do y'all know that Wendell Berry quote that uh, we think that we humans are, are like running the place, but Wendell Berry said, it turns out that Mother Nature has a longer memory, more votes, and a sterner sense of justice. That, that's what we're dealing with increasingly. Our situation is quite dire, but there is good news as well. If we turn back the clock a few Earth days, the climate predictions were looking a lot more apocalyptic than they are today, uh, with the possibility at that point of maybe warming to four or five degrees if we didn't make major changes, degrees Celsius. More recent projections are that warming will probably land somewhere between two and three degrees Celsius, but that's still well above the ceiling of, that we want of 1.5 degrees. 
The Washington Post recently crunched some numbers on what are various kind of scenarios as we kind of extrapolate out. You know, how far over that middle line, that's 1.5. You can see almost every scenario has us going over 1.5 before eventually coming back down. The more hopeful predictions come from a rapid improvement in green energy sources. So since 2010, over the last decade or so, the cost of solar power and the cost of lithium battery technology has fallen by 85%. That's remarkable and, and very good news. Uh, wind power has fallen by more than 55%. There's another factor I should mention as well. I don't, didn't really see that big a deal made out of this, but did y'all see the headlines recently that we just crossed 8 billion humans? on this planet. Now, uh, it's important to underscore, though, that the issue environmentally is actually much less about the total number of people than what is the lifestyle that each of these humans is uh, living. Consider two comparisons. First, let's look at the US and India. Consider the comparison of per person carbon dioxide uh, emissions between the US and India. The black line that kind of starts on the left in each of those two graphs is the last 30 years, so 1990 to today. The blue line is from today through the rest of this decade until 2030, kind of projected carbon dioxide usage. Even with India's population and, um, population and pollution slowly trending upward, do you see that the U.S., that we here in the U.S. are collectively producing far more CO2 with our just much heavier uh, echo footprint of our, of our lifestyle? And if we zoom out to the world, you, th this is a similar situation globally. Countries that represent 12% of the 8 billion people on Earth account for 50% of the emissions. 12% of the 8 billion represents 50% of the emissions that have warmed the planet over the past 170 years in particular. Those of us who live in the world's richest countries, we consume a lot of energy. We, we drive um, long distances. We drive those distances in big cars. We crank up the air conditioning in our offices. We eat a lot of red meat, which is another huge source of emissions. We throw away a lot of food. Here's another point of comparison between the U.S. and Germany. The average CO2 emissions of Germans are far lower than American emissions, and I think this is an important point of reference because Germany is also the largest economy in Europe. So it is possible to live a much more ecological lifestyle without, while still maintaining 21st century standards of living. So what might it look like to shift our collective lifestyles here in the U.S. to be less ego and more echo? Lots of things can reduce our emissions without you know, going to extremes to sacrifice creature comforts. Reliable public transit, right? Investing in that instead of investing in roads that are only centered around everyone in their own individual 2,000 you know, pound steel cage. Reliable public transit, dense housing, walkable neighborhoods, better insulated buildings, moving away from coal and heat and um, gas to produce electricity, wasting less food. One third of food in the United States goes uneaten of our food supply. Plus using products for longer, finding ways to reuse materials. All of that would go a long way toward preserving global biodiversity no matter how fast the global population grows.
In discerning where we go from here, we also need to be honest again that some country, you know, how do we pay for a, a shift toward a more ecological way? We need to be honest that some countries are vastly more historically responsible than others. If we look at the largest emitters of um, CO2, over the past almost 200 years since the start of the Industrial Revolution, we find our own country far outpacing other nations. Similarly, if we consider the correlation between income and CO2 emissions, we find that the richest 10%. So what this chart is doing is it's dividing the world's population into deciles. So there's 10%, there's 10 layers here. And you can see that the top 10% has a whole lot of, of emissions. The richest 10% are responsible for almost half of total lifestyle consumption emissions. The poorest 50% are responsible for about 7%. 50%, only 7% of emissions. So what should we do other than feeling outrage, right? That's outrage is one legitimate response. Uh, I appreciate the climate activist Naomi Klein's uh, constructive proposal that these historic facts should incline us to enact laws based on the principle that the polluter pays, not just the polluter right now, but the polluter historically. In other words, we fund a Green New Deal by passing laws that require the people and the institutions that have profited the most from pollution to pay to repair the harm they have done. So you all know that term externalization, right? We, we've externalized a lot of the costs and the impact on the planet, and we need to build those back in. It's also important to be honest that the changes needed are about so much more than what any of us individually can do. We need large-scale institutional change at the international level. Let me give you two examples, one bad news and one good, that have been on my heart and mind lately. Uh, I recycle as much as possible, as I suspect um, a lot of you do as well. But here's the bad news. At least in Frederick County, which is better environmentally than uh, many other counties in this country, you can recycle many plastic bottles and jugs and um, tubs and jars, but you can't recycle plastic cups or electronics or food wrappers and bags and paper towels and hoses and cords and strings and plastic bags and takeout containers. Many people put these items into their recycling bin. That does not mean that they are being recycled. If anything, you're actually making the recycling process more burdensome, onerous, and expensive for those who process it and have to weed out all the stuff that they asked you not to put in there and that you're putting in anyway. Uh, the, if we zoom out to the whole U.S., it turns out that um, eight out of ten plastic items that are put in the recycling bin, that's about how much actually gets recycled eight out of 100 plastic items actually get recycled. The other 92 plastic items are either burned up or end up in landfills. We need to change the system so that the items we use and buy are you know, as easily recyclable as possible, but that can only be done by mandated legislation. Here's some good news. I was delighted recently when some neighborhoods in downtown Frederick, this may include some of you as well, began offering free composting. Well, maybe it's tax dollar paid for, anyway, whatever. Uh, about a year, it's not costing me anything, more. Uh, Megan and I signed up immediately. And we, we have thought about composting for years, but when it was up to us individually to figure it out, to you know, all of that, we just never got around to it. Now, every Tuesday morning, I put a bin outside my house and uh, you know, with all the compost that can go in from this, what, and there's a lot of stuff that can't be recycled, you can actually compost. And every Tuesday morning, we get a fresh new bin in return. 
That's the sort of systemic change I'm talking about. We need to make it easy on people. We need to make it as easy as possible to be green and as costly as possible to emit CO2 into the atmosphere. Although I suspect all of us wish that the movement for climate justice was leaps and bounds ahead of our um, current situation, I urge you to keep this in mind. Our predicament would be so much worse without the past 50 plus years of climate justice. We would be headed to five degrees Celsius if people hadn't been out there on the front lines of climate justice now for decades. I wish that we were not on track to overshoot 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is the sane limit by any um, reasonable measure. But if we'd left our collective fate to the most cynical and bad faith actors, we would really be much deeper in climate catastrophe uh, than we are already. As many of you have heard me say before, the most important advice I can give you this Earth Day weekend is that if you are feeling overwhelmed individually as one person in the face of such great planetary problems, stop being one person. Join an organization or more than one working for climate justice because we are stronger together. Here at UUCF, we have a climate change working group more broadly in Frederick County. Many UUCF members and friends are part of MAX, the Multi-Faith Alliance for Climate Stewards. Next month, we'll have a chance to hear a sermon from one of our graduating high school seniors here at UUCF, who's a leader in the Sunrise Movement, which is a, a youth-led movement, but adults can come and follow the youth, right? Don't think that it's youth only, uh, the Sunrise Movement. Or if you're more radical, um, look into Extinction Rebellion which is looking into using nonviolent activism uh, and civil disobedience to prevent biodiversity loss as well as social and economic collapse. So on this Earth Day weekend, as we hold all of this in our heart and discern you know, how do you individually and how do we collectively feel led to act for um, climate justice, for ecological justice, and to shift ourselves from egocentrism and ethnocentrism into an ecological consciousness and even a cosmological consciousness. Let's rise in body or spirit. Let's sing together hymn 1064, Blue Boat Home. <laughs> 